0: The file is for personal use to share with friends, family, and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Labrie Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Labrie Fellowship. I'm going to go ahead and get started. And This lecture is called One From Whom People Hide Their Face or Faces, Jesus' Crucifixion and our own shame. And the first, the lecture is sort of roughly divided, and I'm going to talk about shame for a while. Uh, then I'm going to talk about crucifixion. And then the end, sort of what we can do, one of the many things we can possibly do with our shame. Uh, and so the first, while I speak for the first half of the lecture, I'm going to have this image up. I've used this image Pretty regularly through the years here at Livery, some people might be familiar with it, um, but it's one of my favorite pieces of art. Uh, it's called the Wales Window, and it's, it might be hard to see here, but it says in here, "Given by the people of Wales, uh, at 1963." And it was given to 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. And it was given after the events of September 15th, 1963, where four young black girls in their Sunday best were killed by a bomb that was planted in this church by the Ku Klux Klan. And a Welsh artist, a guy named John Petts. Uh, was quite, saw images of this church with blown out glass windows. He was all, all the way on the other side of the pond. And he was quite moved by this. And he wanted to make a new stained glass window for them. And so he decided to refuse to take large donations from wealthy patrons and instead insisted on receiving small ones. Uh, so the poor, the elderly on pension, and school children who saved their milk money from all around Wales, collected their funds and helped fund this beautiful piece of stained glass which now resides in the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. And there's so much to say about this. I think this is a theologically profound piece of art. Um, There's a lot to say about it. But as tonight we're talking about Jesus' crucifixion and our own shame. I just want to draw attention to how uh, uh, pets placed Jesus' face. He is deliberately, he, he made Jesus facing down, and he modeled this off of a Byzantine icon that's called Utmost Humiliation. The face is turned down, and it's turned away, and it conveys not only the weight of sin that Jesus is carrying, the weight of the world, But the unspeakable sorrow and shame the crucified Jesus endured, as he was the one from whom people hid their faces. Uh, There's so much to say, actually, about this particular stained glass window. I could talk about this for a while and would love to also hear back. Uh, But we're going to move on. So this line, one from whom they hide their face, comes from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Uh, Chapter 53, verse 3, in a section which has long been read by Christians as a prophecy of the coming Messiah. And it reads like this. He, being the Messiah, being Jesus, uh, who's called the suffering servant through these chapters. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. There's something about this particular line, one from whom they hide their faces, that so evocatively captures the human experience of shame, the turning away of one's head, casting down one's eyes, the inability to meet another's eyes, a sense of disgust or repulsion. Now, the larger passage in Isaiah speaks of the Messiah's vicariously, vicarious suffering that carries away our sins, and in light of this passage and many other passages in Scripture, it has been a common and completely appropriate move for Christians to associate Jesus' death by crucifixion, his execution, with the taking away of our moral guilt, of our sins, This follows a scriptural pattern that the New Testament authors present. Jesus bears and takes away our sins, our moral wrongdoing, our guilt. Christians speak about this as the atonement. Uh, And at some point, usually quite early in a Christian's journey of faith, one has to reckon with this important question. Why did Jesus die? This is a vital question that speaks to the human predicament. But there's another related question that isn't always addressed that I want to consider together this evening, and that is why did Jesus die on a cross? This is a really important question that also speaks to the human predicament. I think it speaks particularly to our shame, amongst other things. Now shame is a very human problem. It shows up early in the biblical narrative. The first couple, our our first parents, Adam and Eve, prior to the introduction or the entrance of sin, were naked and not ashamed. Yet after the entrance of sin, uh, they go and hide. So sin shows up pretty early. It shows up on the third page of the Bible. But it also shows up quite early in our lives, usually around 15 to 18 months, uh, according to some research. Uh, infants, small children, begin to show signs of responding in shame. Now, I don't know what brings shame into your life, I can imagine. I know what has and what does bring shame into my own life. I know shame is experienced not only through painful and the hard words of others, but I can absorb it through kind of any experience of life. Catching a reflection of myself in a window... not exactly liking what I see, brushing my teeth and noticing new gray hairs or perhaps just less hairs in general, seeing the sorts of cars that are in the church parking lot and then realizing the sort of car that I drive, thinking back throughout my life, getting new shoes or actually going to school with my shoes and seeing other kids' shoes uh, that were newer and nicer and were usually Jordan's. Uh, Or bringing home a test and getting, I think, a fairly respectable 94, but hearing, what about the other 6%? There's lots of things that can bring shame into our lives, and there is a lot that has been written on shame. Shame has re-entered, I think, our public discourse, thanks to the writing of people like Brene Brown. Um, and shame has not meant the same thing in all times and all cultures. But in particular tonight, I'm going to look for help and for guidance from a particular person, a man named Kurt Thompson, and his book, um, uh, The Soul of Shame, Retelling the Stories We Believe About Ourselves, which I think is a really helpful resource. And thanks for a pro tip from Nikkela. He's He has a podcast that I think in some ways well, it does. It walks through the same material as the book, but it's a little bit better than the book, actually. <laughs> he's a little bit better in person than he is uh, in writing. But it's, uh, he, he's a helpful person. He's a psychologist. Uh, he's a therapist. And he's done a lot of work on the relationship between psychology, neurobiology, and the Christian faith. Um, and he, he writes and works on a particular type of shame, what he calls, this is a big, big phrase here, intrapersonal neurobiological shame. So intrapersonal meaning it's within an individual, neuro meaning it, you can see it in the brain, how our brains work, and biological, it has to do with our body. So it's a single person's experience of shame, it's neurological and it's embodied. Now I really appreciate the way Thompson describes shame. He speaks of it as the following. So this is a longer quote from him. Shame is an undercurrent of sensed emotion of which we may either uh, which we may have either a slight or robust impression that should we put words to it would declare some version of I am not enough there's something wrong with me I am bad Or I don't matter. So it's a sensed thing that we feel. That when we put words to it, it says things like "I'm not enough." There's something deeply wrong with me. I am bad, and I don't matter. But before it's a conscious, articulated thought, think Thomas. um, It's an experience that we feel in our bodies prior to putting words to it. Shame is a sensed feeling that we undergo, and eventually. Often, in a pretty quick amount of time, a split second, we attach words to, we give meaning to. The words, again, are often, I am wrong, I am bad, I am not up to this, I am the problem, I am inadequate. And it's worth saying, sooner than later, kind of at the outset, that not all shame is wrong. Being shameless is not an aspiration, Uh, for any of us. This is why we're so disgusted with all of our politicians, both on the left and on the right. They are people who seemingly have no shame. Uh, and, And it's also worth noting, there are a lot of things we are inadequate for in life. This is part of being a creature. I am inadequate to play quarterback for the New England Patriots, I am inadequate to run the Boston Marathon right now. Uh, (laughs) Although I might not be if you give me uh, six months. A friend of mine has told me it takes six months to get in marathon shape. Um, Yet shame does its most damaging work because it often sneaks in and it tells us that we are inadequate for the matters of our own lives, which we're often very capable, capable of living into. We hear, we tell ourselves things like, I'm inadequate to be the right sort of father. I'm inadequate to be the right sort of friend. To be the right sort of employee. To be the right sort of son or daughter. To deal with my pain. And in all of these things, the message we also absorb is that we are wrong. We are bad, and the problem is us. These are moments of shame, and in them, Thompson writes, they exude the aroma of being unable or powerless to change one's condition or circumstances. So we'll feel entrapped by this. We feel stuck. We feel a bit of stasis that we can't move out of this. Now, it's worth spending a moment while we're thinking about shame, while I'm talking about shame, to differentiate between shame and guilt. These are not the same things, nor should they be treated as such. And the more I've read about this, the more I've thought about this and talked about this, I've grown to really appreciate uh, my colleague Dick's uh, work in this area, where he's explained the difference between guilt and shame in his book, Beyond Identity, which all of you Libri students should be reading uh, at the moment. But he says that they use uh, two distinct standards of evaluation, morals and models morals and models guilt is a failure of morals we experience guilt because we've broken god's law and we've done something that is wrong with our behavior but shame is often a failure of models we're not the sort of person we aspire to be we're not the sort of person we think ourselves to already be so the difference is between morals and models and dick highlights three ways Shame and guilt can relate. They can overlap. You steal something. Let's say you steal a candy bar, or maybe you steal a car, or um, I was going to say an MP3 off of the internet, but that's like shit that dates me. People don't really do that anymore. (laughs) Um, (coughs) You experience guilt for taking what isn't yours, and that's because you've broken a law. You've done something that's wrong. But in these same moments, you can experience guilt or you can experience shame because you didn't think of yourself as someone who steals. You didn't think of yourself as someone who's a thief. And in these moments, it's actually hard to differentiate. It can be diff- difficult to differentiate between these two experiences. And I'll be honest, this is not the sort of shame I'm particularly interested in talking about tonight when they overlap like this. The second is uh, that guilt and shame and uh, this is the thing that I'm more interested in thinking about tonight, can be experienced independent of each other. You can experience shame, the sense of not being enough or being wrong for something that's not wrong. That's something, it's not broken a moral law in any way. For instance, you could feel shame for struggling to grow hair, for being bald. You could experience shame For having skin that doesn't really tan in the summer. It just burns. Uh, You could feel shame for being born into a poor working class family. And in these things, we're not the people we aspire to be. But we haven't done anything wrong. It's just part of who we are. So this is the thing I'm more interested in. Where guilt and shame uh, are independent of each other. or Our experience of shame is not coming from... Uh, uh, a moral failure and there's one other way that uh, potentially they can relate and that's against each other you can actually feel shame for something that's really morally good uh, um, for example christians can express shame about actually being a christian uh in a public place they keep it to themselves but again the one i'm most interested in is this independence from one another um, and I'm going to move on to sort of describe some of the characteristics of this undercurrent of sensed emotion. This is, again, Thompson's definition of shame. Uh, which, sorry, of which we may either uh, experience a slight or robust impression that should we put words to it, would declare some version of I am not enough, there's something wrong with me, I am bad, or I don't matter. And and these characteristics that I'm going to walk through also come from Kurt Thompson's work. So the first is judgment, a sense of judgment. And this is not the sort of judgment needed, the process of discernment that we employ day in and day out to make our way through the world. We need to make judgment calls uh, to live. But instead, this is a spirit of condemnation or condescension with which we analyze or critique something around us usually ourselves, and usually we're found wanting. Um, This is not a voice of conviction that we've done something wrong. It's an all-encompassing voice of condemnation that we ourselves are completely wrong. I hear this sort of thing in conversations with people when they say things like, I am such an idiot, I am a piece of garbage, Uh, If you really knew the real me, yada, 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 or I'm just unlovable. This is a sense of judgment upon oneself. This is a characteristic of shame. A second characteristic of shame that builds off of this or follows this is hiding. Hiding. We can do this metaphorically. We can occupy every moment of our day, distracting ourselves, We medicate ourselves with any number of activities to silence our own mind, to potentially hear this judgment again. We can overeat. We can excessively oversize. We can play video games nonstop. We can surf porn. We can just binge on Netflix on the couch. But we hide ourselves. We hide ourselves, in a sense there, in a metaphorical way, by taking on these other activities. But we can also hide ourselves quite literally, uh, from others Thompson writes about the literal turning away from someone with a downcast facial expression with eyes lowered and this shame leads us to cloak ourselves with invisibility to, pre- to prevent further intensification of the emotion so we hide our own faces in shame we look down we can't make eye contact uh, with other people because we're afraid if we make eye contact with them, those eyes belonging to another person, uh, without even saying a word, would send the crystal clear message that this judgment we've had about ourselves, that we're no good, that we're trash, that we're wrong, that they're just looking at us, just seeing us, their eyes will convey the message that that judgment is correct, that it will agree with us, and it intensifies this feeling of judgment, that is really really unpleasant. And so we can we literally can turn our faces from others. And in the process we're actually hiding significant portions of our own lives from ourselves and other from others. And there's an understandable appeal to keeping secrets in this sense we don't want to be found out cuz we don't want others to judge us in the way we can judge ourselves. And so if we keep this shameful thing about ourselves hidden, the possibility that another person seeing it and rejecting us because of it decreases. So we hide from others. We hide from ourselves. This is a very human response. Again, think of our first father and mother, Adam and Eve, as it's recounted in the early chapters of Genesis in the garden. They know they've done wrong in some way, and they attempt to hide. That's the first thing they go about doing. Um, there's, a, there's of course, a real cost to all of this, and it creates a pattern more times than not. And that's the third thing I want to say. So shame is an experience of, of, of judgment uh, that leads to hiding, but it's also self-reinforcing. Self-reinforcing. So over time, as we experience shame and turn away from others, hoping uh, to avoid having our sense of shame reinforced by another, we create this effective coping strategy. But instead of ever confronting the claims that shame is making about us, these claims that we're inadequate, that we're bad, that we are the problem, that we're dirty, that we're unlovable, as we run from these these feelings, as we h- try to hide from them, it actually only reinforces the message. And in the process, it just creates more shame. Thompson writes, this dance between hiding and feeling shame itself becomes a tightening of the noose. We feel shame, and then we feel shame for feeling shame. Shame begets itself. So when we run from shame, hoping to avoid its painful claims about us as people, we're not confronting it in an an unintended way, we're empowering it. We're reinforcing its message about us. And we continue to run further and further from us. And it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see what happens next. What happens next is we find ourselves disconnected and isolated. That's the fourth fourth characteristic. Isolation and disconnection. And I think this is the goal of shame. Isolation and disconnection. If judgment, hiding, and reinforcing become deeply embedded patterns, we will inevitably find ourselves alone alone. Or at least deeply fragmented, with significant parts of ourselves hidden and and protected from others. And again, this tragically and unintentionally, we cut ourselves off from ever finding healing in these places that shame is speaking about us. And I I say this about, it keeps us from from healing, because I think really, and I'll get to this later, a path out of shame is vulnerability, vulnerability being honest with people who are around us, and hiding and this self-reinforcing, it, it, it keeps us from connecting with others. Uh, and as it reinforces this, it, 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 it sets us more and more apart from others. The final characteristic is just mental fixation, which makes sense. Thompson writes, when I experience shame, I find it virtually impossible to turn my attention to something other than what I am feeling. I can become overwhelmed with the activity of my brain and my prefrontal cortex goes offline. I begin to construct a narrative that predicts a bleak and pessimistic future. I can only see myself as being intolerable to others and I sense the impossibility that this feeling will ever end over and over and over again in our mind we fixate on this so again the characteristics he highlights are judgment which we don't want to experience so we hide from it and we don't feel it but as we hide from it we reinforce the message we give it more plausibility this makes us more and more isolated and disconnected from others and it becomes our only food for thought And I think Thompson's work is really helpful for us to see that so often shame walks a fairly predictable, sometimes seemingly inevitable, trajectory. uh, And it it ends in a hell of utter isolation, is what he calls this. Uh, He speaks about, again, the initial turning away of one's face leads to a place that was never imagined. Quite literally isolated, emotionally quarantined, and alone. Now, this is a quote from him. He says, Our desperate attempt to de escalate the awful sensation that we are enduring at the moment by, by turning away, and turning our gaze and a body and body away from someone, we seek as expeditiously as possible to reduce the actual painful feeling of being exposed. We don't want to be seen for the things that bring us shame. We're not aware that we are simultaneously reinforcing this deeply felt notion that we are, in fact, shameful. Little do we know that this neurophysiological response in the long run only serves to reinforce our proclivity to reactivate the very state we are seeking to escape. Um, Not least because we often find ourselves having to cope with uh, this state, uh, this state uh, while we're in utter isolation. Uh, and then he actually says some neurological things that are sort of wordy, and I'm going to skip. But basically, our brains find it very hard to get out of this place like this. And so we feel stuck, and we're unable to imagine or see another perspective on our own lives, another perspective that is at all plausible. So I've been talking about shame for a while, and we've been having this image uh, of the whale's window from 16th Street Baptist Church. And we're going to talk about Jesus's uh, crucifixion. And you might be wondering, what does all of this have to do, this sort of psychological uh, pop talk, have to do with Jesus's death on a cross? And it's a good question. And so for this next part of the lecture, I'm going to move to another piece of artwork to have behind me, um, uh, and- Andre Serrano's Piss Christ. Uh, this is a work of art some of you might be familiar with. It's one that I, um, I, I enjoy significantly less uh, than Betts' Wale's Window. And it's a photograph that was first displayed in 1987, and it caused a firestorm of controversy. And the controversy still continues. Just a couple of years ago, this this photograph was attacked uh, at a museum in France. Uh, people, someone like threw a rock at it to try to destroy it. But it's a, it's a photo of a plastic crucifix, and it's submerged in a vat of the artist's urine and blood. And at the time that it was released in 1987, or that it was unveiled in 1987, uh, a Republican senator from New York called it a despicable display of vulgarity. And he was particularly upset because Serrano had received uh, about $15,000 of, of stipend from the state of New York, and so he was frustrated that taxpayers' money went to this, this picture of a plastic Jesus submerged in urine uh, and blood. But I think it makes an appropriate background image for our question, For tonight, what does shame have to do with Jesus' death on a cross? And I find the words of Episcopal priest and preacher extraordinaire. She's getting on in her years, but I think she is one of the best preachers in America, hands down. Uh, Fleming Rutledge, this is a quote from her um, massive book, uh, which you can see where I got the first image from. Uh, Her massive book, The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ. Uh, I think it was Christianity Today's Book of the Year in 2017, 2016, maybe. Um, But she says this in this book. She says, if Jesus' death is construed merely as a death, even a painful, tortured death, the crucial point will be lost. Crucifixion was specifically designed to be the ultimate insult to personal dignity. The last word in a humiliating and dehumanizing treatment. Degradation is the whole point. Kind of in a more succinct way, a New Testament scholar, Mark Goodacre writes, it was not merely the excruciating physical torture that made crucifixion so unspeakable, but the devastation of shame that this death above all others represented. So it might take us a little bit of work to wrap our heads around this. And I would assume that for many of us, when we think of crucifixion, we would tend to focus on the horrific and unrelenting brutality that this sort of execution would inflict upon a person. And of course, it no doubt uh, would. We see this in sort of the unforgettable uh, images of Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ. Which focuses in an obsessive, I think sometimes bizarre and um, disproportionate, uh, and ultimately revolting manner on the physical sufferings of Jesus. Yet this sort of physical brutality was not the only or even the primary reason people would not want to die this way, of all the ways they could die. Here's a longer quote from an ancient Greek uh, philosopher, Cicero, who kind of gives us a bit of a window into how people thought about crucifixion in an age where they saw lots of people crucified, which is something we don't see a lot of. He says this, How grievous a thing it is to be disgraced by a public court. How grievous to suffer a fine. How grievous to suffer banishment. And yet in the midst of such disasters, we retain some degree of liberty. Even if we're threatened with death, we may die free men, but the word cross should be far removed not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his very thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. For it is not only the actual occurrence of these things, or the endurance of them, but liability to them, the expectation, indeed the very mention of them, that is unworthy of of a Roman citizen and a free man. Crucifixion in the ancient world was a manner deemed unacceptable to be spoken about in reputable society. There's one historian who's written a a small book that is somewhere in this library, I think. I couldn't find it to have it on my stack. It's bright pink, which is um, sort of not what you would expect a book about crucifixion. Uh, Of all the colors that you could choose, Bright pink sort of stands out a little bit. But he writes in this study of crucifixion in antiquity, he says that for men of uh, the ancient world, Greeks, Romans, barbarians, and Jews, the cross was not just a matter of indifference, just any kind of death. It was an utterly offensive affair, obscene in the original sense of the word, meaning you don't don't talk about it, which is... um, and, he, and Hengel goes on to point out that, in fact, there's very little mention of crucifixion in many ancient writings. He says the word kratz, which is cross, uh, petabulum, which is the, um, the this way, the horizontal piece uh, uh, of the cross, it does not appear in the writings of Caesar at all, not because he did not use crucifixion as a punishment, he most certainly did, but because he did not want to write about that kind of thing. And he goes through a long list of other writers from antiquity who don't ever mention historians who never mention crucifixion. And it's wild just to think that in a literary culture that would never talk about this thing, how the text of the New Testament must have been received. That kind of Paul's letters obsessively point to the cross of Christ time and time again. And the Gospels are more or less short narratives that lead up and give the most attention to Jesus' crucifixion. In fact, they're the most detailed accounts of crucifixion from any pieces of writing uh, in antiquity. It is wild to think about how the Bible would have been received, I think, in that how offensive it must have been. But to be executed in this fashion was to have your personhood mocked and your identity obliterated. This sort of execution was something too low, and undignified for a Roman citizen to speak of. Though again, it was something they no doubt saw with some regularity. Crucifixion was an execution that was reserved exclusively for lower classes, for slaves, for foreigners, for criminals. And one ancient lawyer that is in Hengel's book um, assures his fellow Roman citizens that if it ever comes to it, they could count on more humane forms of execution instead of crucifixion. They could count on being burned alive or being decapitated, which were uh, less uh, shameful forms of death. But crucifixion was just reserved for those who are considered to be not fully human. Uh, we see this at work in one of the ways that crucifixion was spoken about. It's called the damnatio ad bestias, Uh, which roughly translates to condemned to the death of a beast. So this was a form of execution that was not fit for human beings, but for animals. If you see something on a cross, it's not a human. That's what the cross says. And tellingly, it's sort of like we couldn't even, you'd go to jail if you executed uh, an animal, uh, a beast, Uh, in the way that people were crucified in the first century. Um, And part uh, part of what made it so shameful is that there's no set rules or guidelines for crucifixion. Much was left up to the sadistic whims and the violent imagination of the executioner. Hengel comments again, the form of execution could vary considerably. Crucifixion, was a punishment in which the caprice and sadism of the executioners were given full reign. We see this at work in the gospel accounts, where Jesus is mercilessly mocked. A robe is placed on his the open wound that is his back. A crown of thorns is pressed onto his head. These are malicious acts of brutality that are curated for his particular death. They're to mock him in a particular way um, uh, and his, his claims for who he was and his particular punishment. Hengel talks about some accounts that we have where people's genitals are mutilated, where people are burned alive with hot oil, uh, and that actually it's not uncommon for people to be executed and then put on a cross. Um, and this is because mockery and shaming are key, are central to crucifixion. Another scholar, Joel Green from Fuller Seminary, notes that the crucified were executed publicly, situated at a major crossroads or on a well-trafficked artery. They were devoid of clothing. They were left to be eaten by birds and beasts. Victims of crucifixion were subject to optimal, unmitigated, and vicious ridicule end of quote uh the public nature of of this is sort of akin to like a grotesque roman public service announcement if because this was often used against people who were trying to uh cause an uprising against the empire uh for criminals or slaves who were trying to revolt and find uh their freedom uh and it, it, again, it's this like grotesque Roman public service announcement. If you're thinking of attempting sedition against the empire or transgressing our laws, our laws which bring order and stability, your fate will be no different from those who are hung out to die. So it happens in a public place. And also what is central to it is nakedness. Nakedness is something that is often left out of our visual representation of Jesus' crucifixion. Crucifixion, kind of through the history of of artwork on this, there's usually a loincloth of some sort or a conveniently placed shadow or something. Uh, But it was most likely that victims of crucifixion were executed completely naked. And this was to deepen the shame, and it adds sexual humiliation and abuse to physical and psychological torture. One can reasonably imagine that this unwanted public nakedness of a circumcised Jewish male like Jesus would have made him a target for sexually abusive mockery by Romans who were carrying out his execution and were themselves not circumcised. Recently, pastor-theologian Elaine Heath has referred to Jesus being stripped naked against his will and put on display prior to his crucifixion as a calculated act of sexual violence. In Jesus's culture, as in the Middle Eastern as in Middle Eastern cultures today, to be stripped naked in front of a watching crowd was an act of sexual violation. So it's hard to imagine a more humiliating event than what's going on here. Kurt Thompson comments on this. He says we find it virtually impossible to look upon his naked form or even consider it, given how embarrassing it feels. Our own discomfort is revealed even in the way we represent it artistically. With few exceptions, depictions of this event usually portray Jesus' loins covered with a cloth. So to be clear, I'm not arguing or thinking there should be a different way to portray Jesus on the cross. That's maybe a different discussion. But it is something that we have, through the ages, had to hide our faces from. We don't want to look at this. The horror of this sort of vicious public shame is, in many regards, hidden uh, from our comfortable, sanitary lives. There's not many parallels between our lives today and something like crucifixion in the first century, Uh, this, this public, humiliating torture of a person that obliterates their personhood. But there is at least one event from our relatively recent past that I think makes some Uh, some interesting parallels uh, to the calculated shame and pain of crucifixion. And that is the lynching tree. The parallels between crucifixion and the lynching tree are brought out uh, in the work of uh, black liberation theologian James Cone. Uh, He's someone whose work I really appreciate, but I often struggle with and often disagree with. Uh, But he... um, yeah, this book in particular, I think, is, is, is quite compelling in certain ways. But in this book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, he writes, both the cross and the lynching tree were symbols of terror, instruments of torture and execution, reserved primarily for slaves, criminals, and insurrectionists, the lowest of the low in society. Both Jesus and blacks were publicly humiliated, subjected to the utmost indignity and cruelty. They were stripped in order to be deprived of dignity, then paraded, mocked, and whipped, pierced, derived, and spat upon, tortured for hours in the presence of jeering crowds for popular entertainment. Now, I've had this picture, this piece of of art, from Andre Serrano up, For the second half, second part of this lecture. And knowing that it's uh, a a plastic crucifix emerged in urine and blood, uh, maybe it disgusts you, maybe like much of modern art, art, uh, it perplexes you a little bit, or maybe it makes a little bit of theological sense to you. Uh, Someone who has found uh, some theological sense to this, this this piece of art is a poet named Andrew Hudgens, uh, and I think he's probably found some sense that perhaps Serrano didn't intend or was himself aware of uh, at the time. But I don't I don't particularly know. And he wrote this he wrote this fairly incredible poem in response to this piece, um, and I'm going to read it uh, to you all, uh, leading into sort of just the final section of this lecture. And it's a poem, It's for Serrano, uh, and it's called Piss Christ. So he says this. Well, actually, that's not how you're supposed to do a poem, I think. Uh, it's a, a quote from a book. Sorry, uh, I'm new to the poem thing. Um, all right, Piss Christ. If we did not know it was cow's blood and urine, if we did not know Serrano had for weeks his urine in a plastic vat. If we did not know the cross was gimcrack plastic, we would assume it was too beautiful. We would assume it was the resurrection, glory. Christ transformed to light by light. Because the blood and urine burn like a halo, and light, as always, light makes it beautiful. We are born between the urine and the feces, Augustine says. And so was Christ, if there was a Christ, skidding into this world as we do, on a tide of blood and urine. Blood, feces, urine. The fallen world is made of what we make. He peed, ejaculated, shat, wept, bled, Bled under Pontius Pilate, and I assume the mutilated God, the criminal, humiliated God, voided himself on the cross, and blood and urine smeared his legs. The piss Christ, thrown down in glowing blood, the whole and irreducible point of his descent. God plunged in human waste and radiant. So why did Jesus die on a cross? I think Hudgens is on to something. God plunged in human waste, both literal excrement and figurative shame and radiant. I love how the writer of the letter to the Hebrews puts it in the beginning of the 12th chapter. One of the parts in the New Testament that I think one of the writers in the New Testament that connects shame and the cross in an explicit way, uh, which Paul doesn't do as often, the Gospels don't do as often, but the the letter to the Hebrews does. And so I'm going to read a little longer part. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great, great a cloud of witnesses, let us rid ourselves of every burden and sin that clings to us and persevere in running the race that lies before us while keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the leader and perfecter of our faith. For the sake of the joy uh, that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and has taken a seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider how he endured such opposition from sinners, in order that you may not grow weary and lose heart. It's that language... Of despising its shame. Uh, a literal rendering of it would be thinking nothing of it, disregarding it, not taking it into account, countering or disagreeing with the message that shame is sending. This is an intentional posture towards shame, it's not a reactive one towards shame. Jesus has sought out shame by choosing to die on a cross. And he does not blink in its presence when the hour comes. The shame of crucifixion, the very worst that could be thrown at him, doesn't keep him from the possibility of joy. The message that the shame of crucifixion sent this is not a person on the cross. This is a beast. This is a criminal. This is trash. This is something that is wrong. He faces all of this head-on, and he undoes it. Perhaps we could say, in choosing to undergo crucifixion, all the while disregarding its shame, thinking nothing of its shame, Jesus puts shame to shame, and he robs it of its power. There's a well-known Puritan writer named John Owen who wrote a massive book that I haven't read uh, on the atonement, and he calls it The Death of Death, in the death of Christ. And his point, in part, is through Christ's death, the power that death had over us has been undone and eventually will be completely defeated in the new heavens and the new earth. And so in an analogous or similar way, I wonder if it's possible to speak of the cross as the shaming of shame in the shaming of Christ. The undoing of the power of shame. And part of how he undoes it is by disregarding it, by moving towards it, by thinking nothing of it. And there's there's something instructive for us also in this passage from Hebrews, uh, as we consider our own shame. And it's just the word that we are surrounded. The image of this great cloud of witnesses that the author of Hebrew uses, we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, It refers to those named in the previous chapter of Hebrews, to be specific, those who have gone before us in the faith, but it's also those who are with us now. While our shame often works to isolate us, the vision of life with God is that we are not left alone. Thompson, again, Kurt Thompson is helpful here. He writes, Our struggle against shame is begun not by ourselves, but in the company of trustworthy friends, family members, and spiritual mentors. Concrete, concretely, this means regularly and intentionally revealing our most hidden shame in the context of those relationships that comprise the great cloud. When I see my friend's face, hear his voice, sense his empathy for my plight in real time and space, I am given the opportunity to, to imagine a different way of telling the story of what has uh, been only shame, isolation, and being stuck. Now, this, of course, takes time, it takes perseverance, it takes much more than listening to one lecture. But the remedy for shame is honest and honored vulnerability among those you trust. And it's worth, I think it's worth repeating. The remedy for shame is honest and honored vulnerability among those you trust. You can't get more vulnerable than being exposed naked on a cross like Jesus was. Then this image in particular in Hebrews of the crowd of witnesses is is a group cheering us along as we run. Because we're surrounded by them as we run this race. They're cheering us on. These are people who are rooting for us telling us the truth about our lives and countering the voices of shame that are so loud in our own mind. Again, Thompson, he says this, I've said elsewhere that we are all born into the world looking for someone looking for us and that we remain in this mode of searching for the rest of our lives. When we acknowledge our shame, it resonates with the shame carried by all of us. With confession and in confession, shame is given the opportunity for response, someone can speak to it, exposure, and ultimately the healing in the life of the listener as well as the speaker. So learning to tell the truth about our lives, being vulnerable about who we are in the places that shame communicates to us, our unworth, our complete wrongness, it's it's really counterintuitive work. You could think of this sort of like emotional nausea. Uh, throwing up is awful. No one wants to throw up. Um, but most of the time when you throw up, your nausea is gone. And there's something analogous to this with shame. When we move towards it with others who trust, who we trust, who honor it, and are honest with us, we realize we're not alone in it. And what it's telling about us isn't the whole story about us or the whole truth. It doesn't get to have the final word on us. Yet when we run from it, we actually validate its message about us. And its voice gets louder and stronger. But when we set our eyes on Jesus and we surround ourselves with a great company of witnesses, maybe a few friends, a trusted mentor, and we run towards him. His pow- the power of shame can be undone. And throughout the biblical narrative. From at least the third page. Uh, when sin enters into the world. We see a God who moves towards shame. Who doesn't run away from it. Our first parents hide in shame. But God comes looking for them. Where are you? Who told you? You're naked. He comes looking for them. And this. Moves throughout the biblical narrative, but it culminates in the cross, where God takes upon himself both our sin, but also our shame. He takes upon the most shameful manner of dying the ancient world knew. God is plunged in human waste and radiant. And that's what, that's actually where I'm going to stop. Um, I've spoken for quite a while. Um, You're free to get a cookie, you're free to leave, go to bed, Uh, but you're also free to ask questions. I will respond to them. I may not answer them. Uh, I might actually not respond to them. I may just deflect them. Um, uh, But, yeah, um, we're open to have a conversation here uh, for as long as anyone would like to about any of these things. And I'm just going to move it off of this picture back to this one that I like a little bit more. Significantly more.
1: Yeah. I really love what you said about the the surrounded by a cloud of witnesses kind of holding us and so we don't need to feel ashamed. It has felt to me often in the church, particularly in the more conservative church, that certainly when it comes to certain things, sexual sin in particular that we're surrounded by a kind of cloud of judges. Mm,
2: yeah.
1: And, yeah, I just wonder if you could, s- s- why is that? What, what's yeah. missing? Yeah. Because it, it it's awful for those who, who feel the shame yeah. and are met with that judgment.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Does anyone else have a, any thoughts on that immediately? I'm just going to. Yeah, go for it, Maria.
4: It just, when you start, it, shame is created when you categorize sin and you elevate one sin above the other, but gossiping about your coworker is just as simple as, like, you know, having or even following through with, like, same sex like urges, like they're the same, they're still sin. So it's just like, I'm wondering a lot of that shame, is it due to the creation, human creation of categorical sin, you know?
0: Like Like we have a hierarchy of Mm sin, yeah, that maybe mirrors our culture in some way. So like Mm -hmm. greed can kind of get covered over by being a a savvy business person Mm -hmm. um uh yeah where certain sins like you mentioned like sexual sins uh become uh are are, are very pronounced and yeah yeah i i don't I, i i would i would really be slow to venture exactly why um I think it's definitely incredibly painful. I think they're also, like, those sexual sins are so pervasive, <laughs> you know? Uh But there are just some ways that we can keep them hidden, and then when they come out... Yeah, I know, I... um Yeah, does anyone have any thoughts about that, or...? I mean a great cloud of judges does sort of sound like evangelicalism (laughs) to me (laughs) and I say that as someone who you know is evangelical um uh
3: question why why is sexuality such a a magnet for shame yeah yeah Yeah. I think in many ways it isn't in many many people today for whom there are no sexual boundaries that are important you know so it's it remains an area where there are boundaries for some people, and it remains an area where there are no boundaries for other people. And, and you are, again, going back to you saying about morals and models, and I want to do a whole lot with heroism here. Because shame, experiencing shame is an experience of being unheroic by your standards of heroism, whatever mm-hmm. they might be. And it would be very different from different people. Yeah. And so a huge amount of shame will be experienced if we're having cracked and weird and hopelessly sexually constructed heroes. Yeah. And so we'll be tyrannized by our own shame because we've got all the wrong heroes. And, and the, the, the relativity of heroism just explains a huge amount of how why shame lands as it does in different people in different ways. Mm. Uh, so it's, uh, I think it's and of course the culture is a little bit near unified in terms of our heterosexual
0: yeah. It's do you, do you have any thoughts on why it, it does still seem like prevalent in the church? Like in the church, like, wh- you know, that gets elevated in some, or, or can be elevated in some ways where other sins get kind of like excused or I'm just. It's, it's, it's often complicated, but of there's a huge
3: amount of self righteousness there. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. The, the idea of <laughs> homosexuality is seen as heinous. Really serious right. because goodness, I'm not that. That's not my problem. know and, and uh, I can see I see that in so many Christians that it you know, carries a unique seriousness which the Bible doesn't give it at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and, and I think that's it can very often be a kind of self-righteousness ourselves. Yeah. which can be accumulated as, as a group. Yeah, uh, and, and make you really sure. You know, this is really. What Oh, no, yeah. No, no, no wiggle in here. And, and uh, <laughs> that's something very self satisfying.
2: Mm, yeah.
3: But it, it's much more complicated Yeah. Esther, did you
0: want to add something to that? Or? Yeah, I think uh, this is another piece of next question. Um, it's like the cloud
3: of judges. That's thinking
5: about, like, The look of judgment is, is another way of hiding our faces, I think. It's yeah. like a mask of self-righteousness. Mm. The that gets put on yeah. towards someone. Instead yeah. of like, looking at each other as, you know, that yeah, you have that shame and I have shame too. Like, you know, that. Um, like, looking eye to eye in a really honest way. A way of hiding, another way of hiding,
0: yeah sure. yeah that's really yeah that's good yeah, yeah
3: the, the, the satisfaction carried by blame and outrage is vast yeah
0: yeah that's a good way to put it
6: it's outraged, it's yeah,
0: yeah 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 yeah
6: peter i think also uh, certainly within the evangelical tradition there is no developed or still not yet really robust uh, theology of the body and I think the uh, there's attached to the sexual sins just the simple you factor uh, no. uh, that we're not comfortable really kind of discussing in a matter of fact way uh, and the uh, and, and kind of akin to that you know, I, I think of uh, Ezekiel's on mm-hmm. sin of Sodom, which is not mm. what you read in Genesis but it's more what is it of greed and uh, self accumulation and, and, and things of that nature and I think those sorts of sins uh, because they're more subtle and hidden but still um, affect all of us in, in some ways and uh, we do kind of turn from because the others are the easy targets, as, uh, as, as Dick and others were saying. But but and, and also just to add to the art, uh, if you ever want to add music to this, of course we, that, uh, the that that section of Handel's Messiah, despised and rejected of men, mm-hmm. when he talks about he did not turn his face. From sin and for from shame and spit is mm. really really quite
2: powerful.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah. No, thank you, Daniel. Did you have something? Yeah.
7: Yeah. So for me, like this is like a uh, question Nick asked. Is I think it's an important question, and um, it's um, so like how I turn to this is like uh, I'm. Uh, in a Sense of like mathematical terminology for like existence, exist, ten, proof of existence rather than I'm like making constructive case for it. So like, I think the next question is important because like I see the connection with the theology of, of virginity. So I didn't really study depth about this, but I think the reason like you know some category of the sins, as mentioned, is the effect is irreversible, right? It's like, so I don't know why the virginity is so important in a sense of like theological viewpoint, but like in a sense, like once just like you know, within the physical common sense, once virginity is lost, we cannot recover that uh, in a physical sense. So I think there is uh, somewhat the theological connection that you know the it's irreversible effect that cannot be you know. Uh, I, as mentioned, I, I didn't really think deep about this, Like, what's the deep connection with the theological curve of light and uh, like, why sexual sins are so considered highly because, as mentioned, like, it, it, it has, I think, some kind of irreversible effect compared to maybe just, let's say, stolen money, right? It's like we can recover the money uh, in some sense, but, yeah, this, in you know, a sense of the sexual sin, I think they categorize into a level of uh, this irre- irreversible effect. And like, even sense of like, you know, like this is also kind of commonly happens. And I heard, I heard from Westminster village seminar professor, he was constantly young woman and uh, you know, as so I said, you know, this is not really shameful culture nowadays, so they slept together as a, just a boyfriend and girlfriend before the marriage, but boyfriend just abandoned her. So now she's uh, uh, pregnant she decided not to choose an abortion. So, like, you know, and she kind of, you know, come to the church and uh it, but still she has to carry the consequences of rest of life. Now she's with a kid, right? So that's why, like, as I mentioned, this level of, like, sin in some sense as her, you know, it's not just, like, nearly, like, one level of it, but as I mentioned, she needs to also carry the rest of her life for this consequence what she has done. So I think, yeah, that's... the Essentially, I didn't really think deep through to the level of like yeah. theological connection to the virginity, to the this. But yeah, it seems like this is one of the irreversible effect there. In some sense, you know, that makes this is like a you know, hierarchical some level yeah. in this uh, category.
3: But
0: like, in like, some murder is also yeah, something yeah, that's, that's right. like irreversible. Is that, is that yeah? I'm just trying to follow. Yeah, yeah, I've not thought of that in that way. Yeah. Yeah, am uh...
8: Just wondering whether another aspect of of uh, of what your question, Nick, is just the uh, because like you said, it's because sexual sin is so pervasive but is also for, for many people the private thing that that is hidden and so is a shameful thing and I just wonder whether yeah, part of the self there's a self justifying um, motivation behind like listing sexual sins out there. We know that's bad. We know that's bad because we we don't want to acknowledge the pervasiveness of say pornography use or pornography addiction, which is, if if half of the statistics are true, is just incredibly widespread within the church. Um, to to demonize sexual behavior, <coughs> whether it's just promiscuity or um, homosexuality or whatever it is, is just the way to to not have to deal with the actual sexual sin that's happening right here um, mm-hmm. in the pew, so to speak. <laughs> um, yeah, I just, I just think there's a huge reluctance to address it, and by and by locating sexual sin elsewhere, somehow. Maybe, maybe people in church feel they never have to actually address the sexual sin that's real in their own life.
2: Um, yeah.
8: I don't know if that's true or not, but it just seems like it's likely. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: Did you have something, Heidi? Um,
4: well, it wasn't necessarily connected just to sexual sin. Is that all we're
0: kind of? No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. About? Let's yeah. Let's move on. Yeah. This is good. <laughs> Yeah, because I was just thinking it's interesting,
4: um, like, what Ben was talking about, too, but as far as Mary goes, right, because, like, we're talking about the Virgin Mary, but it's like Jesus himself lived a pure life, Mm. and so he still had full of shame, you know, like, and even when she was pregnant and became pregnant, she was a virgin, obviously, Mm. So his life kind of started in shame in a way. Mm -hmm. Because it felt like it was this, you know, accidental pregnancy seemingly. And so, yeah, it was just super interesting too, talking about you know, like, Mm -hmm. sleeping around, what have you. But it's like, Jesus himself started in shame in a
2: way, Mm -hmm. from a
4: Jewish culture when you're looking at culturally. Because everyone has shame. and It was passed down generation to generation. And so, I don't know, I just think even leading up to the cross and carrying all of that shame into the end of his life. It's just kind of crazy that we are going through this, talking about it and saying, yeah, shame is possible, regardless of whether it's short term, long term, you can be healed from it. But it was like his entire life he was carrying that. And so it's just interesting how we I don't know how we can kind of understand that holistically when we're talking yeah, about yeah. the cross, the culmination of all of it. Yeah, I don't know. It's just kind of, when I think about, you know, my own shame, it's just like, yeah, absolutely, he took that on. It's just amazing to think that he was willing to do that. I just, it's incredible.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's really... <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: I think to distinguish between shame that he would have experienced as shameful as opposed to people trying to put shame on him from the start. Because oh,
2: the illegitimate, yeah, yeah, yeah. Seen
3: by many of the illegitimate son after the sons. And, and the, the, the horrendous <coughs> thing that they described, the shame that they tried to put on him by crucifixion. Uh, but the fascinating thing to me is that like in John's Gospel, chapter 13, he's saying to the disciples "This the night before, he was just about to go out they were all about to leave. You are about to see glory, 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 five times he used the word glory in one sentence about what uh, they're about to see, what they're about to experience is the glory of God in showing the extent of the love of God willing to save us. Yeah. Yeah. Which only was, the greatness of that glory only because of the horrendous lowness and shame of the cross. Yeah. Uh, and so, he sees it as glory, the absolute opposite of shame. In the biblical study, yeah. you know, the opposite of shame is glory or honor. It's honor, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and Jesus, in, in uh, describing what they're about to see, the word glory is that it's just
0: dominant. Yeah. Yeah, it makes me think of in um, uh, in Philippians 2, this pattern, yeah. you know, that you're supposed to have this mind amongst you all, um, like, like, Christ who emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, and then, you know, suffered death, even death on a cross. Mm-hmm. And the opposite of that is, therefore, God highly exalted him, or, like, super honored him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his glory. Yeah, 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 that's good. That's really good. Yeah, I think Ingrid had her hand up a second ago. If you want to say something before oh, jump no, back to bed. Okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. I'm trying to say
8: something in response yeah? to this. Yeah. Um, that raises a really interesting question for me about Jesus uh, being God and a human being. And, and as a human being, I think we can assume that he is embedded in a culture. He's very much a Jewish man. He's very much um, it's not not a sinner, but, but still part of a culture. Uh, and so the the passage in Hebrews you quoted, which he despises the shame yeah. of the cross. That <clears throat> are, are we are we to believe that that means he is because he's God and he viewed and, and he knows to die on the cross is actually a display of his glory. Uh, that he's just he's in a sense transcending the cu- cultural shame entirely, yeah. or can we say on some level Jesus as a human being. Suffer the shame of being crucified because he spent his entire life in a culture that's viewed as terribly shameful, um, and yet, as God, that moment of shame is glory. I mean, that that's like the the, the ultimate display of his of his love and the length to which he would go. Uh, that's what glory is. I'm just I'm just wa- wondering like how how we yeah. think about Jesus as a human being and as God. And as a God who who God knows what glory is. God isn't it God isn't influenced by human standards of what's shameful, right? <laughs> and yet Jesus is part of a culture in which shame connected to crucifixion is very real. You know I just don't know if there's any if you have any thoughts or if even that's clear, I'm not sure.
0: <clears throat> yeah, that's a, yeah. Yeah. I I mean there are I know, like there are. There's a tradition of um, theologians, like that guy von Balthasar, who talks about the cross in its ugliness and in its God-forsakenness as, like, the revelation of true beauty. And mm. I never always know what to. Yeah, how do you like? How do you? Um, it's a good question. I don't know if I. I yeah, I don't know if I have a, like a like a. I mean, there's definitely an upside down backwards. Way to the kingdom of God that subverts our assumptions about what is power, what is glory, um, even what the good life is. You know, the good life is to take up a cross um, and to follow after Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's a, it's a good question. I don't, I, I don't hesitate. Yeah. Oh, Ingrid, this time right, um, This is not
9: what I was initially thinking, but. Maybe along the van a little bit. Maybe turning a whole different way, actually. I was thinking about um, when you mentioned how the lynching tree is, offers a parallel to an experience of shame. If you were to think of the cross in terms of its horrificness, maybe not its beauty, um, but just, yeah, the... the just all, it's, it's what is not supposed to be in so many ways. Um... I was thinking actually um, of the Me Too movement a little bit and women who have experienced violation and um, abuse. And um, a friend, a mutual friend of many of ours here, in Marchukrile, Marchukrile, um led a women's theology discussion group on an a article written by a woman who looked at the crucifixion as basically parallel to rape, which is a really strong statement and I feel Very vulnerable, and you're just saying that right here, right now, even. But um, I found it really comforting personally to think of that. And I thought I wished other women who have had experiences of violation would have that opportunity to see, um, like, literally, Jesus was penetrated in ways he shouldn't have been, like, by spears, like, physically in his body. And how powerful that was, considering, like, Dr. I think you once said, like, Harvey Weinstein was, like, the um, ideal Roman male. Yeah, yeah. Right? And, like, Jesus is the antithesis of this. Mm -hmm. Like, he is being um, made powerless, being subjected, penetrated in ways that, like, no Roman male, as shown by, like, the authors you were talking, you were referencing would ever want to endure or come near to you. And so for what it's worth, I just want to put it out there, um, like, perhaps, Um, if there are women who are wondering, who have wondered, who have never even considered that Jesus' pain could be relevant to their own pain, it was a great comfort to me to think, like, just because, like, and men certainly experience Abuse and violation, too. I don't want to overlook that. But as a woman with a woman's mm. body, it was really powerful to me to think like Jesus has known like violation to such a degree. And I could, I started reaching out to him and knowing him as the man of all sorrows and acquainted with grief. Mm. it made it like more relatable mm. to my own past. And so, oh. whatever that's worth, um, I just wish. I want to offer that if there are any women yeah. who may be in that place um, and have never seen Jesus as acquainted with their own sorrow or violation. The cross um, really is a deep subjugation and violation mm. that could, there's certainly pushback is welcome to, but like, could perhaps be related to that deep experience.
3: Yeah, thank you for sharing
0: that. Yeah, I mean, I um, I don't know I don't know what you read, but that I've read similar things, which is what why I was quoting Elaine Heath, and that this is a form of sexual violence as right. well too. Yes.
2: And um,
0: yeah, I had a few. I just, for time's sake, cut out a few other parallels up, <laughs> apart from the lynching tree, uh, and one of them was uh, thinking about uh, Abu Ghraib, the prison outside of Iraq. That U.S. Um, army men uh, and women, um, and not to just isolate, I'll say, this is just like an American thing, because I think this happens in warfare all the time. It was just I was, you know, in college when I first heard about this, and didn't think Americans, my fellow Americans were, especially military, were capable of things. But yeah, just this brutal, inhumane torture of Iraqi citizens to try to get information that the nature of it was incredibly sexual and uh, a lot of taking pictures of people naked, putting bags on their heads making them do all sorts of terrible things to sort of and it was part of a long process of like shaming them and psychologically breaking them down and um, yeah it's not that it's, it's not that they're like nice pictures to look at or anything but there is this yeah, they're not at all, but there's, they took a lot of pictures and sort of there's these American soldiers that are sort of celebrating over the, like, kind of goofy over the na- naked bodies of Iraqi men, you know, that are being shamed. And I was like, is this what sort of Jesus is? <laughs> is this what he went through when he was stripped naked and then whipped and then they put a crown on his head? Like, um and, yeah. So I think there, I think there's something to what to what
3: you're saying. I guess this, this.
0: There's,
9: there's something comforting to me, too. Thinking like, for whatever reason, growing up in like, um, I don't want to diss evangelical conservative churches, but um, maybe one of the harder parts of it for me was like having this sense of like Jesus was so sexually pure, and in a way, I think I translated that into sexually naive as well. And yet, like, it's really um, tragic. It's it's the drama of what he experiences highlighted even more for me in the sense that like he was celibate, he experienced all the like the the wrong sides of sexual encounter, mm-hmm. <laughs> basically, rather than the right sides. Mm-hmm. Like he didn't even have like yeah all the only experience of like whatever like sexual experience. I, I feel weird and awkward saying this again, but like was so was just so wrong, and that is also, it just turns um, on its, I don't know, I feel great. I feel like, I believe that Jesus can be a sympathizer um, now, like, yeah. knowing yeah. that, like, wow, he didn't, yeah, all he experienced was the horror of sexual abuse. Yeah. Like, what a shame.
2: Yeah, um, yeah. Just, yeah.
0: Anyone have any? You had your hand up for a little bit. Yeah, but i moved
10: on a bit.
2: Yeah.
10: Foundational to some of this discussion, I know that the lecture wasn't really about the sexual stuff, but it's kind of dominant discussion. But underlying it was the idea presented, the presupposition that all sin is equal. And I think that's a mistake. I don't find that Mm -hmm. in Scripture. I think uh, certainly the Ten Commandments have an order against God are higher and more serious than sins against people. And even the sins against people, um, they also have an order. And God himself uh, addresses certain sins as abominations or detestable. God does that. A person to lie with an animal is detestable. A man to lie with a man is detestable. Uh, And sexual sins, there are several other sins because you send the answer on God. So, um, I, don't, I don't think we should proceed as though all oh, are equal with the same. They're not. But murder is higher than in the list than, than adultery, for example. So, the other thing is, I wasn't sure why Dick referred to Jesus' glory as being on the cross rather than the resurrection. I'm not saying it's wrong. I
3: the whole thing. The whole event. that, so they wouldn't include both. You're absolutely right. It wasn't to cross along without production. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. But what they were about to experience was the
0: crucifixion. picture. Yeah. Gloring was the whole picture. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. It. and just your your point about sins. Yeah. I I don't I don't actually I don't know if I am on the same I would see it the same way like I think like definitely in regards to how our sins play out in the world there's more consequences to some sins uh that are done against others or done to one's own body than than maybe others but I I yeah I just don't I don't totally know I don't I don't know if I necessarily see order as always ranking or calling like Adding more words to it, like detestable or abomination, create other um, categories. So, or, or, or a ranking. That's just so. I'm, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to take her first because I think she was here for the. Yeah, go
2: for it, um, Lisa. Yeah. It's um, totally
11: unrelated to anything. So that's yeah. Cool. <laughs> but, yeah. But um, just the thing that's been running to my mind is, you know, when you talk about, um, you know, the the remedy and how it's counterintuitive to what we think, but you think of the power of recovery groups, and that's what that is. You're coming together with others, you're sharing in a safe place, and that's where the healing is. And I think that's why there's so many... For so many, you know, it's just grown for all the different ways that people try to run yeah. from, you know, the original thing. And then um, they try their self medication or their, um, you know, whatever path they choose to, to quiet the shame. And then the only way to freedom is to bring it into the light in a, in a community where they can be loved and through it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's a power about. I haven't spent a lot of time in recovery. I've I've only been to one meeting, and I was just amazed at you know people's openness to speak about where they failed that week. I was like, I'm, what would it be like, if, you know, in in a church if someone stood up and was like, this week I sure this week, you know, and. But the way also people responded um, was not was not a cloud of judgment, but a cloud of at least in this room of people who are self aware enough to like I've been there. I, you know, I could very well be there later tonight, um, but by God's grace, I'm not. And um, yeah, there's something very um, there's an, yeah awareness of. I don't know—a uh, uh, humility and an uh, 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 awareness—and it undoes that power that shame has. I think in in a pretty profound way.
11: Um, and you think about your contrast, like if if someone were to do that in a church, sadly, I think as you were talking earlier, it wouldn't be met with humility but pride. Like, I don't do that. Yeah. You know, you're—I mean, maybe not everywhere, but. You know, I think that's why people don't do it in church. Yeah. There isn't there isn't that thought of being met with humility and love and, you know, uh, acceptance. Is, it's where, you know, the contrast.
0: Yeah. 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 I was going to get the, yeah, yeah, go for it. Can you remind me of your name? We've met before. I'm... Oh,
12: really? I didn't. Maybe I came here before. Yeah. I'm Daniel. Daniel, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. But yes, um, so I was thinking about uh, how it's interesting that Jesus was the one that felt shame, but the people that looked on him were the people that probably should have felt shame much more. Yeah. Uh, Jesus was the one who is completely righteous. And I also like your point about um, coping with shame. And how shame can uh, be a good thing or a bad thing. Because shame will help us to maybe do the right thing. We have good role role models and we want to do the right thing. But shame can be a bad thing if we're doing the right thing and we get persecuted. Um, But also, I want to pose the question, um, how much of shame can we cope with? And if we're alone, like you said, oftentimes we're alone. right? Jesus was basically love and humility. And he experienced one of the most shameful things of all. So if we're alone, and we have no one to talk to, how can we cope with shame on our own? And I guess that's the same with the things that cause us to do shameful things. How can we cope
0: with those yeah yeah how do we cope with them on our own like if we don't have people to help speak speak truth or to be vulnerable with yeah that that's the question i'm just making sure i got it yeah yeah Yeah. yeah yeah there i mean there are some ways where jesus is our our exemplar and i think there's other ways where jesus is um pretty exceptional <laughs> um and and maybe not um yeah i mean there's lots of things jesus did that i wouldn't just then say well jesus did this so they're like i'm not going to try to walk on water or um you know uh, but so i and that's not just being funny to get out of your question because it is like the question of how do we do that alone um I mean, it's that's that's a good question, and um, I mean, I ultimately think Jesus is with us uh, if if we have have faith. So, in there's that one sense, we're not alone, but we do often experience it as being alone. And um, so, I don't say that in a way to sort of be trite and just sort of spiritualize it. But uh, yeah, I, that's a good question. I'm gonna. Yeah, do you have any, or do you, no? Well,
12: sort of. Yeah. I didn't think of, like, yeah, we have Jesus. Um, but also, Jesus was forsaken, uh, where, like, he said, Father, why have you forsaken me? So he was eventually utterly alone. So, uh, but I guess that's true. Before he actually said that, he probably did have the Father like we have.
0: Yeah. Were you going to say something? Yeah.
3: Yeah, uh, it's hard to say oh. briefly but salvation itself you could see um, god forgives us if we make this separation of morality and terror and, and or, uh, or shame uh, jesus offers us forgiveness for our sin for our transgression we break a law we're guilty for breaking the law uh, and he that's forgiven but you can forgive someone without actually loving them. You can forgive someone without wanting them on your vacation with you. Uh, but salvation does not stop with just forgiveness, which is a forensic, it's a legal concept as it's set up justification. But but where, where in our sin, God accepts us personally. That's different than, it's, it's totally tied to forgiveness. It's not standing alone without forgiveness, but it's something much more interactive and personal than than just a the legal uh, okay, case dismissed, you're not you're not uh, your liability's gone, you don't have a fine anymore, whatever. It's he adopts us into his family, uh, accepts us welcomes us and grabs us and the, the prodigal son gets hugged and gets a banquet. Well. You know <laughs> and uh, that's, that's that's the uh, the nature of salvation. Uh, and, and that's got to be, I think Protestants too often just see it, reduce it to the legal, which is totally true. But, but we need to say it's much more than just the legality.
2: Oh.
3: And, and, and God is welcome, grabbing us and hugging us and bringing us in. And, and uh, so that's mm-hmm. salvation itself, even without other people, that's where I would love to have seen Kurt oh. Thompson's. Drink, bringing in the full breadth of uh, Mm. of, of, of Christian salvation. We're meant to really do much more with adoption Mm. than we are apt to do, Mm. Uh, and and see the significance of it. You get you adopt a kid, and the kid just busts the windows or steals the car. They don't get unadopted. (laughs) They're still in the family, (laughs) and and they're brought in.
0: Were you going to say something too, Esther? Thank you, Dick. Yeah, yeah.
5: I'm I'm still just based on what you said meditating on that verse about you know people hide their faces and the prayer that we see throughout scripture I think a lot of times in the Psalms where there's a
2: lot of prayers about shame in the Psalms. Mm-hmm. About, you know, kind of like, you don't yeah, don't want to get shame, yeah. But there's also a prayer a prayer you know light like, Yeah. light you know all the way
5: through uncovering all the darkness all the shame all the things I'm trying to hide Um, that that prayer as well and I think yeah in thinking about shame if you feel like you're dealing with that alone those prayers are given to us I think as a tool well, how do we reach out then to God who sees our shame what kind of what kind of language do we use that that idea of like the light of his
0: face shining on us is that just yeah. I think I saw Chris next and then Peter and then Daniel. Yeah, yeah.
8: Um I just wanted to get your opinion on, on the. <coughs> oh, sorry. On the, my God, my God,
6: why have you forsaken me? Yeah. My understanding is that that was Jesus quoting Psalm. Yeah. And either whether he was just praying that or whether he generally felt for a second, or he just felt forsaken by God or whether he generally was saying, my yeah. God.
0: Yeah, yeah, so I, um yeah, uh, to be honest, I, I I don't totally know how to enter into this, but I, I tend to think Jesus is quoting Psalm, I, I believe Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, and is, is quoting the beginning, I mean, and there's a movement to the psalm, like, and whether or not, and so I, 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 This moves from a historical account to sort of like metaphysical, theological. I struggle to know how to make sense of a complete rupture in the Trinity, uh, that if all existence flows from God and is dependent on God's existence, if God somehow stops existing, like I I don't know what to do with that. I confess um, hesitancy... And I feel embarrassed to disagree publicly with uh, the, the Gettys and that hymn. Um, I think it's one of their hymns, but it says uh, um, something about the father turns his face away. Uh, being, uh, the father turns his face... I never sing that line. Um, I just don't. I, I'm not convinced it's theologically <laughs> there. I struggle to also just publicly differentiate or distance myself from the Giddies, who I think are brilliant gifts to the, the church. Um, so I, I, because also, I mean, Psalm 22 does not end, it begins in there, but it, it doesn't, it ends in vindication, like, and ultimately the cross is not the final word of separation from God, but I mean ultimately in, in the resurrection, and even what what's going on on Saturday in between the cross and resurrection there's a lecture i gave on that a number of years ago i don't really remember what i said <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you want to know the truth um i i don't yeah so i i actually have a book that i have read at some point um called forsaken that is about that uh, i've read it because i've marked i've marked in it uh, at least most of the way through um, that I meant to reread this afternoon but I was trying to my kids around um so yeah I don't know did that answer I know I sort of yeah. hedged myself a number of times uh, in that but I, I yeah I, there's more like that it it's a more I mean this is my understanding of sort of the history of theology too it's 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 a it's a move that's made more recently like last 50 years, 40 years. and uh, It is not something that is a common... Like, that, that there is a definitive separation between the Son and the Father, like a, a rupture in the divine life of
3: God. That's the recent move?
0: That's the recent move, that there is one. So guys like... It's more of a recent move. So guys like Jürgen Moltmann and even to some extent like Karl Barth would want to see a, like a fissure... In in God's life, I have I just have questions about it, or it doesn't totally sit right with me, or seem to be the only necessary read of Jesus quoting Psalm twenty two in the prayer. Um, but there, yeah. So, but that's also where we're talking about <laughs> Jesus, who is fully God and fully man. So, what part of of Him is abandoned unto death? I think is. His human self is, but... His, uh, his humanity is, but... It moves into areas that are just, to be honest, like pretty far above my head and pretty far above my pay grade. Um, so I have a fair bit of humility about it, I guess, but... Um,
13: you were saying what part is... you were saying? What, what part is something? You're just saying
0: it now. Uh which 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 part I, I just said a bunch of things <laughs> I don't know what I just said
7: <laughs>
0: oh that I just have humility about it I'm not really sure where I stand on the question um, I don't think that must not have been what you wanted Thomas uh, I'm not I'm sorry, what did I say
2: <laughs>
0: oh. <laughs> oh yes yeah yeah so what part is in, in, in Jesus on the cross when he says my God my God why have you forsaken me Jesus is fully God and fully man is is God turning him back on himself in like like the divine part or even speaking in parts where, where I'm treading on heresy um, but is Jesus abandoned in his humanity or in his divinity and there are more recent theologians that want to say, yes, God, in God, Jesus' divinity and His humanity is abandoned on the cross. So
13: Jesus,
0: and that Jesus, Jesus suffers the there, the or that the divine suffers on the cross in that way. But yeah. Did I answer it, Thomas? I'm afraid I didn't answer it. I didn't
13: hear that, but you said that Jesus' divinity did what?
0: Whether the divinity suffered on the cross as well and was abandoned by the father so is there a rupture in the Trinity or is it Jesus's humanity and I'm I'm just also trying to say I'm moving into areas that I I don't really know what I'm talking about um, and is well above my pay grade um, does that was that what you got uh, no, no, not
13: quite, but It seemed that Jesus obviously was separate from the father because he said why is thou
0: you say me, so really. You're saying he's separate. From yeah, and I'm I'm trying. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure. I would want to say though that Jesus, in his divinity, is separated from the Father completely. Like that, that makes a rupture in the Trinity. That I I I don't really know. I don't see that as the necessary reading. Also, because I think you know Psalm twenty-two, which he begins the quote from. And I, I, think he genuinely means, you know, and if you work through Psalm 22, there's, it's a long description of being abandoned, of, of being, uh, overcome by your enemies, of being ashamed, but it ends, it doesn't end in that place. And we, I know that that's where, I mean, that's where the story goes by, by Sunday morning. Um, so, I'm not sure I'm answering <laughs> what you're saying, but, um, Is it, am I, are we, do you have more, do I need to say more? I just want to make sure I, I, okay. You did pretty well. Yeah, did you, yeah, Peter?
2: Uh, Just to
6: go back to the piece of art, and this I think kind of may blend with what Dick was saying earlier, is that as I study that picture more and more, uh, one of the things I'm struck by Uh, sort of the dynamism of the crucifixion is that if you look at it, Jesus is no longer on the cross. Yeah. His feet are not there. His hands are not there. And you see the rainbow. Um, Yeah. And so it seems as though the crucifixion is, in that portrayal is trying to encompass not just the pain, but also the glory in in, in a sense the anticipation of the of the resurrection
0: yeah it's a little bit of like the victory like the christus victor what the early church calls Christ's victory over evil and the powers in in there as well yeah i i think so and yeah even the cross is yeah he's definitely off of the cross that's for sure and um
8: Really, his face that ties it to the shame. Yeah, right. yeah. The yeah. hands and the posture and the background and everything is is, is uh, communicating glory and victory. Yeah, and his face, which is very central. Yeah, that's the part that's quoting the icon, right? That, that's,
2: yeah. Uh, that's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Like yeah. yeah.
8: And,
6: and one other thing. This could go back maybe to this forsaken question. Yeah. It is. Uh, it it, it is, it's a sticky wicket, but uh, the, if the the crucifixion is considered sort of an eternal act, uh, I think the, uh, I mean, having both temporal and eternal aspects, I think one of the best descriptions of eternity is uh, where there's absence of cause and effect, and so there is something Happening, uh, which, uh, to, to go what you were saying, she just sort of transcends our world. And we can't really pierce it because something happens, but what is the cause? What is the effect? If this is God in eternity somehow communicating to us, it, it's really hard. <laughs> <laughs>
7: yes. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 yeah,
7: so, after I hear Daniel, and uh, that's exactly what I was trying to talk about, that, uh, the forsaken part. Because, for me, when I see that passage, it's the hermeneutic principle we have to apply is uh, Trinitarian trin- uh, hermeneutics. So obviously, that passage itself, the, the Son is talking to the Father. That itself is already divine communication. So, which means that, as mentioned, like um, you know that this passage itself is somehow there is an incomprehensibility like element in it mm. uh, because this is a because trinitarian principle, and uh, <clears throat> that. But at the same time, while we can get out of it, as mentioned, like we, the as mentioned, the Jesus Christ is a I think one of the, my favorite. Some philosophers, Blaise well Pascal, but the paradox, Jesus Christ, the paradox was originated from the Jesus Christ. So even this kind of situations and uh, like like we see this kind of principle. In some sense, like we cannot exactly like how to like, make these connections, like a um, comparative relationship. In some sense, he was definitely he was forsaken. So, but in another sense. He was, he was not in a sense of like, um, it, it says, this is trinitarian principle. So in some in some sense, like, right, he was, he was one, but in some sense, he was kind of diversified um, relations there. So that's why, like, um, like the what we can kind of get out of is as mentioned, like itself, you know, the it's a paradoxical. Is that we cannot kind of make a model like like a quantum as like quantum mechanics. It's like in some sense he was separated, but it's not. In some sense, it's not separated. It's like light and particle. How those th- two things are compatible? And we are trying to see as It's like it's like we we just seen with the one linear dimension of it. It looks a contradiction, but like if you see as this is because of Trinitarian, uh, you know. Uh, hermeneutics we can see this deeper model but especially like can we really get to know that in like like uh, can we like, uh, really the model for it I mean we've been trying for a circle like thousand years well like we are still so I think we have to kind of resolve as some incomprehensible element you know that's the kind of thing especially like you car and uh or Mortiman tries model but as mentioned, I'm also skeptical about a lot I think also I can criticize you know, many other dimensions about that. So yeah, I think it's more safe in general to as evangelically be trying to interpret this, as we should remain somewhat incomprehensible element in it, um, to this passage.
0: Hmm. Yeah, looking at a mystery, yeah, there's yeah, that's there's
7: right. there's yeah. the mysteries yeah. there's a part of the Roman. Yeah. Yeah, Richard? Yeah,
1: I, I, I've been thinking about the, the glory aspect a lot and something that anti Wright really brings back often is how when we think about the cross and the resurrection we sort of forget that it's God uh, taking its throne its rightful throne you know we often talk about salvation mm-hmm. but to me like the opposite of the shame is the glory of God taking its throne and like the the promises of establishing its kingdom, like the 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 most glorious thing we have in the like the image, you know, as Christ as priest and king and prophet. Like the king is the glory part, is the glorious part, and I just I just wanted to point that out as when Christ dies, he dies in the most ultimate shame, and when he's risen. As God taking His rightful place on the throne. Yeah. I think it's really like it's the first time I like I understood the shame part mm. so well, so like it just makes that very nice portrait. Mm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Can
8: you just just responded that I, I um just thinking about the role of the resurrection in the story of Jesus' shame. it's interesting mm. to me because the the resurrection. Um, in the, in the Old Testament, it seems that the whole idea of resurrection... Well, it's not everywhere. It's just in a couple of key places. It seems to be... Um, and certainly in the New Testament, Jesus' resurrection is referred to as sort of a vindication. It's, it's God showing that his servant was actually the righteous servant. Um, and was actually right in all he said. And... Um, that, that's interesting to me because in a sense that is the, whatever shame was experienced on the cross um, whatever whatever human shame was experienced as part of a human culture being crucified in that horrible way you know is is undone in the resurrection mm, yeah and it's, it's revealed that actually yeah. no God doesn't resurrect charlatans <laughs> God no, no, no. resurrects his servant who was who was Right and true and good, and mm. the resurrection is both accomplishes mm. everything for us theologically, but it also indicates that Jesus is vindicated. Jesus was right, um, and it also is the the sign for for early Christians that the crucifixion was a sacrificial death for them, and that it was acceptable. It was accepted mm. by God. The fact that Jesus mm. was raised from the dead means that his death was effective. Mm. So there's all this, yeah. The price is paid, and this yeah. is a sign that it's been paid and accepted. Yeah. Boom! Death is gone, you know. And uh, it's interesting to me. I'm, I'm just starting to think about it, like all the ways in which the resurrection itself just, just, like, just blows the shame out of the water. For, yeah. For uh, both for believers, but also for the person of Christ Himself, who, who scored the shame. It was, it was you know. Um, It was for the joy set before before him that he endured the cross, and and it's it's ultimately this amazing vindication from God. Yeah. Yes, he really was who he said he was. Yeah. And what he's done is completely accepted and effective. Yeah.
0: That's one thing I love about. uh, I mean, there's like you know, atonement arguments amongst theologians, but it's like as you start to talk about one facet of the cross, it's hard not to be like, oh, it's also. Like yes, it's it's a shameful death, and but then yeah, you connect it to like it's it's victory and and vindication and it's paying a price, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a model for us to walk. Like there's just so much going on, especially yeah. like, in part why I really like this. I feel like there's a lot going on <laughs> in this this image, but like yeah, when we start to like restrict or, or, or uh, narrow in on one thing, mm-hmm. um, we miss. Like it's, 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 uh, there's just, there's a lot, it's <laughs> a lot happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Thomas. Uh, I was just thinking now that I don't think this has been mentioned yet. Um, and, and that is that, uh, and, uh, right, um, Jesus,
13: uh, Was he, he didn't. He didn't. Yes. He, he, in a, another way in which he suffered was that he had to take sin, which was so horrible to him anyway. Mm. And he didn't just hold it in the palm of his hand. It was in him and through him. He became sin for us. Yeah. And he, sin was all throughout him. Yeah. When he was on the cross.
0: Yeah, Christ he made, made him, God him, God he knew, him, yeah, to be seen.
13: All the things for him. He, yeah. he had to endure all that sin, not mm. only in on the outside but in the
2: inside
0: too. Yeah,
13: yeah, 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 yeah. And, and I, I heard evangelists say that he was that he didn't uh, um, that he didn't uh, become sin, hmm. but the
0: scripture finally said he became sin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Corinthians, yeah, mm. God made sense, yeah. Say 2 Corinthians five or something? I forget. I shouldn't quote as reference to scripture. Either. Well, clearly people are leaving, but I'm happy to keep talking. Jules, thank you. That was yeah, yeah. Well done. Yeah, thank you. Yeah.
2: I'm happy to say anything or chat anymore if anyone wants anything. I'll shut the. Thank you.